This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 33 Refreshments and Ethics. In regard to Island 74, which is situated not far from the former Napoleon, a freak of the river here has sorely perplexed the laws of men, and made them a vanity and a jest. When the state of Arkansas was chartered, she controlled to the center of the river, a most unstable line. The state of Mississippi claimed to the channel, another shifty and unstable line. Number 74 belonged to Arkansas. By and by, a cut-off through this big island out of Arkansas, and yet not within Mississippi. Middle of the river on one side of it, channel on the other. That is, as I understand the problem. Whether I have got the details right or wrong, this fact remains, that here is this big and exceedingly valuable island of four thousand acres thrust out in the cold, and belonging to neither the one state nor the other, paying taxes to neither, owing allegiance to neither. One man owns the whole island, and of right is the man without a country. Island 92 belongs to Arkansas. The river moved it over and joined it to Mississippi. A chap established a whiskey shop there without a Mississippi license, and enriched himself upon Mississippi custom under Arkansas protection, where no license was in those days required. We glided steadily down the river in the usual privacy, steamboat or other moving thing seldom seen. Scenery, as always, stretch upon stretch of almost unbroken forest, on both sides of the river. Soundless solitude. Here and there a cabin or two, standing in small openings on the gray and grassless banks. Cabins which had formerly stood a quarter or half-mile farther to the front and gradually been pulled farther and farther back as the shores caved in. As at Pilcher's Point, for instance, where the cabins had been moved back three hundred yards in three months, so we were told. But the caving banks had already caught up with them, and they were being conveyed rearward once more. Napoleon had but small opinion of Greenville, Mississippi, in the old times. But behold, Napoleon is gone to the catfishes, and here is Greenville full of life and activity, and making a considerable flourish in the valley, having three thousand inhabitants, it is said, and doing a gross trade of two and a half million dollars annually. A growing town. There was much talk on the boat about the Calhoun Land Company, an enterprise which is expected to work wholesome results. Colonel Calhoun, a grandson of the statesman, went to Boston and formed a syndicate which purchased a large tract of land on the river in Chico County, Arkansas, some ten thousand acres, for cotton growing. The purpose is to work on a cash basis, buy at first hands, and handle their own product, supply their negro laborers with provisions and necessaries at a trifling profit, say eight or ten per cent, furnish them comfortable quarters, etc., and encourage them to save money and remain on the place. If this proves a financial success, as seems quite certain, they propose to establish a banking-house in Greenville, and lend money at an unburdensome rate of interest six per cent is spoken of. The trouble heretofore has been—I am quoting remarks of planters and steamboatmen—that the planters, although owning the land, were without cash capital, 
had to hypothecate both land and crop to carry on the business. Consequently, the commission dealer who furnishes the money takes some risk, and demands big interest, usually ten percent, and two half percent, for negotiating the loan. The planter has also to buy his supplies through the same dealer, paying commissions and profits. Then, when he ships his crop, the dealer adds his commissions, insurance, etc. So, taking it by and large, and first and last, the dealer's share of that crop is about twenty-five percent. Footnote. But what can the State do where the people are under subjection to rates of interest ranging from eighteen to thirty percent, and are also under the necessity of purchasing their crops in advance, even of planting, at these rates for the privilege of purchasing all their supplies at one hundred percent profit? Edward Atkinson. A cotton planter's estimate of the average margin of profit on planting in his section. One man and mule will raise ten acres of cotton, giving ten bales of cotton, worth, say, five hundred dollars, cost of production, say, three hundred and fifty, net profit, one hundred and fifty, or fifteen dollars per acre. There is also a profit now from the cotton seed, which formerly had little value, none where much transportation was necessary. In sixteen hundred pounds crude cotton, four hundred are lint, worth, say, ten cents a pound, and twelve hundred pounds of seed, worth twelve or thirteen dollars per ton. Maybe in future even the stems will not be thrown away. Mr. Edward Atkinson says that for each bale of cotton there are fifteen hundred pounds of stems, and that these are very rich in phosphate of lime and potash that when ground and mixed with ensilage or cotton-seed meal, which is too rich for use as fodder in large quantities, the stem mixture makes a superior food, rich in all the elements needed for the production of milk, meat, and bone. Heretofore the stems have been considered a nuisance. Complaint is made that the planter remains grouty toward the former slave since the war, will have nothing but a chill business relation with him no sentiment permitted to intrude, will not keep a store himself, and supply the negro's wants, and thus protect the negro's pocket, and make him able and willing to stay on the place, and an advantage to him to do it, but lets that privilege to some thrifty Israelite, who encourages the thoughtless negro and wife to buy all sorts of things which they could do without, buy on credit, at big prices, month after month credit based on the negro's share of the growing crop, and at the end of the season the negro's share belongs to the Israelite. The negro is in debt besides, is discouraged, dissatisfied, restless, and both he and the planter are injured, for he will take steamboat and migrate, and the planter must get a stranger in his place who does not know him, does not care for him, will fatten the Israelite a season, and follow his predecessor per steamboat. It is hoped that Calhoun Company will show, by its humane and protective treatment of its laborers, that its method is the most profitable for both planter and negro, and it is believed that a general adoption of that method will then follow. And where so many are saying their say, shall not the barkeeper testify? He is thoughtful, observant, never drinks, endeavors to earn his salary, and would earn it if there were custom enough. He says the people along here in Mississippi and Louisiana will send up the river to buy vegetables rather than raise them, 
and they will come aboard at the landings and buy fruits of the barkeeper. Thinks they don't know anything but cotton. Believes they don't know how to raise vegetables and fruit. At least the most of them. Says, a nigger will go to H for a watermelon. H is all I find in the stenographer's report. Means Halifax, probably, though that seems a good way to go for a watermelon. Barkeeper buys a watermelon for five cents up the river, brings them down, and sells them for fifty. Why does he mix such elaborate and picturesque drinks for the nigger hands on the boat? Because they won't have any other. They want a big drink. Don't make any difference what you make it of. They want the worth of their money. You give a nigger a plain gill of half a dollar brandy for five cents, will he touch it? No. Ain't size enough to it but you put up a pint of all kinds of worthless rubbish, and heave in some red stuff to make it beautiful, red's the main thing, and he wouldn't put down that glass to go to a circus. All the bars on this anchor line are rented and owned by one firm. They furnish the liquors from their own establishment, and hire the barkeepers on salary. Good liquors? Yes, on some of the boats, where there are the kind of passengers that want it and can pay for it. On the other boats? No. Nobody but the deckhands and the firemen to drink it. Brandy? Yes. I've got brandy, plenty of it. But you don't want any of it unless you've made your will. It isn't as it used to be in the old times. Then everybody traveled by steamboat. Everybody drank, and everybody treated everybody else. Now most everybody goes by railroad, and the rest don't drink. In the old times the barkeeper owned the bar himself, and was gay and smarty and talky and all jeweled up, and was the toniest aristocrat on the boat. Used to make two thousand dollars on a trip. A father, who left his son a steamboat bar, left him a fortune. Now he leaves him board and lodging. Yes, and washing, if a shirt trip will do. Yes, indeedy, times are changed. Why, do you know, on the principal line of boats on the upper Mississippi, they don't have any bar at all. Sounds like poetry, but it's the petrified truth. End of chapter 33